So we are, uh, today we're in Lamentations uh, chapter 3, which is around page 818 in the Black Bibles that are provided for you. And if, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, you know, the, the app is fine. You may want to use the Black Bible today because we'll be flipping through all of Lamentations a little bit today. And sometimes it's easier to get a visual when you see it all on a, on a page before you. But um, I wanted to use the first few sermons uh, where I uh, am back in the pulpit to, um, to just sort of uh, bring before all of us different passages that have been uh, helpful uh, for me specifically, for me and my family as we, uh, in these last four months, as we've uh, dealt with uh, the death of Elona. And, uh, and that's why last Sunday we started with Psalm 77, and, uh, and this Sunday in Lamentations 3. Uh, both, both of these passages have to do with needing better memories. So if you were here last Sunday, uh, the psalmist just sort of he moans about the reality that like sometimes the answers we try to give ourselves is, well, let's try to remember the good old days. Uh, let's try to bring those back to mind. And the remembering the good old days, as the psalmist felt, and as you have probably felt also when you've been in darker times of discouragement or even depression, when you've faced sorrow and grief, sometimes remembering the good old days isn't such a help because it just causes you to wonder, well, is that it? Are they always going to be the good old days? Will there never be good new days in my future? Uh, Lamentations 3 doesn't do that. So Alistair, well, no, Sinclair Ferguson is going to help us with the rest of this. (laughs) So um, in Lamentations... There's an admission, not that sometimes the memories are good and they're hard to remember, but the reminder that often the memories are pretty bad. It's not just the good old days that haunt us. It's the bad memories. It's the things that we've faced. It's the sorrow. It's the loss. In the past, Amy and I have loved Lamentations 3, specifically these center verses, 19 to 24. And you probably will recognize them. If you don't already know what those center verses are, as I read them, you'll realize, oh, I didn't know that's where that came from. Or, or you'll see that. We sang, uh, the hymn we sang comes from that, or at least one of those verses, great is your faithfulness. That hymn has been such an encouragement to people that it really doesn't matter what top 100 list you find, great is thy faithfulness is in the top 100 hymns of all time on every list that I have looked for this week. But as my pastor used to, well, my professor used to say, and it wasn't original to him, and I couldn't find who it was original to, and no one seems to know who first stated this, but a text without context is just a pretext for a proof text. So text without context, so without seeing why it's there, what else is surrounding it, is just a pretext for a proof text. 
And so, you know, we see, I saw a mug once that sort of illustrated this. It said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) And so that's sort of the humorous way of putting it. But how Lamentations 3, 19 to 24, in, in isolation, is sort of a help when you barely need help. Uh, Lamentations 3, 19 to 24, in context, offers a help when you, when hope has died. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and I'll read just from 19 to, uh, to 26. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So as I said, in these last several months uh, since Alona's death, uh, these passages, these verses have offered me a different help than, than they've offered me in the past. And it's mostly because of where they are, like where they fall. First of all, where they fall in chapter 3. They're right in the middle of chapter 3. And chapter 3 is right in the middle of a very short book in the Bible titled Lamentations. Now, as a kid, memorizing the names of the books of the Bible, that was just a weird collection of four syllables that meant nothing to me. Uh, So Lamentations, kids, is simply uh, a collection of five grieving poems. So to lament something is to grieve or to have sorrow for. Uh, So these are five, Lamentations is five chapters, and these are five elegies, five funeral elegies. Uh, Not eulogies, so it's not thinking of all the good of what was lost, but they're elegies. It's loss, it's death, it's sorrow, it's grief. And what the writer is lamenting is the death of Judah, the death of Israel, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the taking of God's people into exile. Uh, It's really the death in some ways, even as he expresses it, it's the death of a promise. But it's not just five poems. So this is why I want you to, 
if you have a Bible, so if you flip back to Lamentations 1, you'll see like every verse is three couplets long. So it's kind of an A, B, C, A, B, C. Every verse has that. You see that? And then so you flip through to the end of chapter 1 and there's 22 verses. And then 20, chapter 2 begins. And again, there's three, each section, each verse is three couplets long. And again, there are 22 verses. And then you come to chapter 3. Now every couplet gets its own verse number. And there are 66 verses in chapter 3. But 66 divided by three verses is 22. So chapter 3 is the exact same length as chapters 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 4, you look, you go to the end. Now, chapter 4, it's suddenly two couplets. But again, it's 22 verses long. And then chapter 5 is just one. One, almost like chapter 3, but it's short. It's just 22 verses long. So here are five elegies, five laments that are 22 verses long each. I've probably said this a few times, so some of you are already thinking, oh, 22 verses. There's a clue in that. Because there's 22 letters. There's, there are. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Which doesn't mean anything unless you're looking at the Hebrew of these verses and you realize chapter 1, every verse, begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it would be, in English, it would be like, a dot dot, B dot dot, C dot dot. And chapter 2 repeats that pattern. A dot dot, B dot dot, C dot dot. The reason chapter 3 has 66 verses is because in that one, the poet, every line, every couplet begins with that letter. So in chapter 3, it's A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. So there's an intensifying of the structure. Chapter 4 goes back to just the first letter, but now it's shortening. Like So the, the pattern, the, the walk, the gate has changed. So it's just A dot B dot C dot. And then chapter 5, though there's 22 verses, abandons the structure of the alphabet. Now just in that, like don't you ever, like sometimes we read the Bible and and you can even pick up from the structure of what's being written things that are being conveyed. And so in one sense, lamentations, the, project, the progression of lamentations really by the end is saying, you know what? Sometimes the structure doesn't help. Sometimes there's no structure to my pain. There, I can't. Like it won't fit neatly anymore. By the end of Lamentations, the sorrow, the loss, the pain, there's no neat, tidy categories for it. It's just loss. And so there's, even in that, there's this, this picture of sorrow, even in the structure of the, of the Lamentations itself. But here in the middle of so chapter 3, where it has the most structure, there's just this, um, the beginning of chapter 3 is overwhelmingly painful. Like the first 18 verses of chapter 3, 
they're almost, and we won't read them in order, but they're almost a, an anti-Psalm 23. So the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. So listen to how some of these verses pair with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 10, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. And so the poet here, the shepherd has become the predator. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Look at verse 5. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He restores my soul. Verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Verse 14, I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. You anoint my head with oil, verse 13. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. My cup overflows, verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in the ashes. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, verse 3, surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 6, he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. What kills hope? Verses 16 to 18, the sixth letter of the alphabet. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. What kills hope is life in a broken world. All of, the, all of the nightmares and the memories of what has been lost and will never be back. This sense that your shepherd has become a predator. That your protector has become your enemy. And then add to that the nagging feeling and question is this what I deserve did I bring this on myself I'm 
what if I am only reaping what I sowed? With a darkness that overwhelming, how, how does hope revive? What revives this man's hope? How is it rekindled? He states in verse 18 that his hope from the Lord is dead. And that's actually the trigger. Like, not the trigger in the way we negatively use it today, but that's the trigger. My hope in Yahweh has perished. And simply saying those words and calling God by his name reminds the poet that there's more going on than what he can see. I think that we uh, maybe lose the gift of God's name uh, by not acknowledging more frequently and more regularly the covenantal name of God that he gave to his people to call him by, Yahweh. This name that reminds you that I am who I am. My being doesn't change. And so you are not consumed. Even stating it in the negative, my hope from Yahweh has perished, helps him to see because The rest of this, if you go back and look through verses 1 to 18, he won't talk to God. And he won't even mention his name. From verse 1 to 18, it's he, 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 he. And at the very end, just that accusation. My hope from the Lord has perished. And from there on, there's a slight change. There's a huge change in the middle and a slight change for the rest of the chapter, but he remembers God's name. His hope is in the Lord. And look at how much hope and the Lord's name are connected in this section. So it begins in the negative in verse 18, my hope in the Lord has perished. But then the end of the next Triplet, verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And then the end of the 24, the next triplet, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Verse 26, it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust, there may yet be hope. Hope And Yahweh always arrive together. Hope has died. I can't shake the memories. I can't get away from my afflictions. Life is so bitter. The bitterness, the gall, either keep me awake at night or wake me up too early in the morning. Yet this... Yet this I call to mind. The the darkness, the sorrow, the grief, the pain, I don't have to call those to mind. 
Those come without want. I, I don't want them to come and they show up. They show up in the most unexpected times. They, I can't get away from those memories. But some memories have to be wrestled. Some mes- memories have to be wrangled. They have to be chased down and summoned. This I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love, the chesed, the, the, the everlasting kindness, the everlasting love, the never forgetting, always promise keeping love of the Lord never ceases. It never comes to an end. His mercies never end. They are new every morning. So three things just from these verses that we read. The writer knows 100% without any doubt that what he's facing is a direct result of sin. The sorrow, the pain, the grief, the loss is he knows without any doubt what they're going through as a nation, what he's going through as an individual is specifically, unequivocally because of sin. It was warned about in the law when you entered the promised land. Don't turn to other gods. Don't look to the other nations. I'm your God. I will protect you. It was warned over and over, and every prophet, every prophet came to Judah or to Israel and said, turn back, turn back, stop turning to these false gods, turn back and live. The writer knows that this is absolutely because of sin, and he grieves. So even if what you are facing, a sorrow, a grief, a loss, a pain, a misery that just won't shake, even if it were true that you could be 100% guaranteed it is entirely because of your sin, God says it's, it's okay to lament. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to feel the pain of that. It's okay to admit this is hard, my hope in the Lord has perished. Like there's, there's a certain comfort in knowing that even if I, and I don't have the law and the prophets telling me everything that I'm facing is absolutely 100% guaranteed because of my sin. So it's okay to feel the pain of pain. It's okay to grieve loss and misery. Second, I don't know if you've noticed this. If you put your finger at verse 24 in chapter 3, there's a lot of chapter 3 left. Like, this isn't at the end of chapter 3. This isn't like, I've gone through all these things, and here at the end, oh, it's okay. I figured it out. Phew. In fact, it's not the end of Lamentations. 
It's the middle of the middle chapter. Lamentations ends with back, like right back where chapter 3 begins. Restore us yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's the end of Lamentations. Unless you have utterly rejected us. Unless you are exceedingly angry with us. So, in Lamentations, we have this this poetic picture of the real struggle of, of grief and hope. Like, there's this... This picture of like, you're like, oh, he's getting it, he's getting it. Oh, oh, he lost it, he lost it. And that is the real struggle. This is a person who who knows the answers, but also knows the nightmares. For... uh, for me, I know, and I won't speak for Amy, but we've talked about this some. Uh, Sundays with you all are middle of Lamentation 3 days for me. Like, I, I can remember. When I come and worship with you all, I can I can remember. I can bid those memories to come back and have hope again. And Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I forget sometimes. And I'm lost in just the sorrow again, of things that will never change. And in the grief of not understanding, I don't understand. I can't pretend to understand. Our counselor, I highly recommend going to a counselor probably all of your life, but especially during hard times. Uh, he suggested when uh, he knew we were going to get a three-month uh, break from the pulpit, he suggested, well, you may, it may be helpful to go somewhere else so you can, you know, go somewhere else and worship, somewhere you can kind of worship and grieve in anonymity. And uh, I was telling Bob and Rich that at a session meeting that we had on my back deck about that. And uh, and they said, well, sure, that would make sense in a normal church. And they said, but your counselor doesn't know hope of Christ. And really, no one does. And uh, Rich said, how many pastors, a month after his daughter dies, finds comfort in calling for an elders' meeting on his back deck. 
We have delighted in coming here. And it's not, listen, I get that not everyone has that. Not everyone has, well, they can't. Everyone can't have hope of Christ. Look around. This is who has it. It's you. It's me. We're the elite. I mean, not because we're awesome, but, but I mean, this is a great place to worship and rejoice and weep. Like, this is, you know, and it's, it's, it's not, like, it's, it's like, you know, parents having children, too. Like, it's not like the pie is limited. Like, we could, like, it would, it would stay this. Like, tell people. We need to tell. I need to tell people. Like, this is it. This is the place. Like, we've said it over and over, like the whole, the whole gospel is one, one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Man, that's hope of Christ. I mean, this is where you're going to find hope that doesn't disappoint. It's interesting how, how the writer goes back and forth between hope and wait. And like, even in Hebrew... They're often the same word in this section. Like there's three different words for hope that are used in this section. And those three words are also interchanged sometimes with wait. So there's hoping and waiting. There's hoping and waiting that comes out of this this passage. That's what hoping is. It's waiting. It's not, I get it all. I understand it all. It's, I wait. I know it's true. I don't feel it today, and so I wait. You know, the third thing, I said there were three things. Uh, The third thing that comes out of this passage, or these verses, it's interesting, when the poet is able to connect to the good news of God's unchanging, steadfast love, he's able to see, like, you know what? It would be good to just wait quietly. I mean, that would be a good thing. Like he says, he says in verses... uh, At 25, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to, that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. And I want you to not see that and think, Oh, no, I'm not doing it right then. Because I'm not very, I'm not very quiet about how yucky this is. See that? That was self-control. I'm not being very quiet about this. Well, <laughs> those verses are in the middle of five really not quiet laments. Like chapter one, chapter two, chapter four, chapter five. They're they're pretty vocal about how bad things are. Chapter 3, pretty vocal about how bad things are. This is in the middle of chapter 3 that will then go right back to lamenting. And so it's not some sign of you're, you know, you're, you've arrived in sanctification if, just, if, if, you, if you can lament silently, if you can wait in silence. Sure, that would be great. And there are times that we can, and there are times that we scream my hope has perished, and it's okay. But maybe you think, well, that's Old Testament. 
of, I mean, there's no New Testament books called Lamentation. So it can't be, uh, like, it could be that, like, now that we have the full light of the gospel, now we are the people who, let's be honest, have the joy, 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 joy down in our hearts. On Tuesdays, which, again, that's what I, as a kid growing up, I thought we had it Tuesday, which was weird to me. But no, it's to stay. The joy stays forever. But like Romans 8, I love Romans 8, 23 to 25. They combine, he combines the hope and the waiting and the groaning. Paul says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So he's talking not about those who might get saved one day. He says, we who belong to God, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the guarantee that we belong to God. He has sent and left his Spirit as a security deposit to guarantee. When, uh, when Amy and I were dating and in college, we went out to eat uh, one day, and it was about a mile from the school, from my dorm. We got there, we ate, had a decent time and it was it was fine and I forgot my wallet in the dorm and so I left Amy at the table I said stay here I don't want them to think we're ditching I'm gonna run back and get my wallet and run back which I did and I was younger then I know it's more it's less believable at this point but (laughs) I got back, and it was funny because the owner, he just laughed at me. He said, you did not have to leave your girlfriend as a deposit. (laughs) I was like, well, I just wanted you to know that I was, when I said I was coming back, I was coming back. And he's like, well, I believe you. (laughs) And that's nothing compared to the deposit you have of the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits of... We have the the fruit, the Spirit himself dwells in us and we wait eagerly for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We're so eager and we groan. We who have the first fruits groan under the weight of this broken and fallen world. But in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. And so saying to someone like, like, well, it's just, it's hope assumes you don't know. Otherwise, it'd be called no. Like, it's you hope for something that you can't see right now. You hope for something that's been promised. And we have, we have spoken with friends who are also going through grieving and loss and sorrow. And the refrain we keep saying to each other is, this better be true. <laughs> like, like, but that's it, isn't it? Like, I mean, Paul acknowledges that in 1 Corinthians 15. Like, dude, if this isn't true... We have many problems. Like that's the hope that we have. That's the hope that Amy and I have. That's the hope that you can have, that, that God keeps his promises. 
Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so how does hope survive then? How does, so if, this, if remembering these things revives hope, how does it survive? How do I stay in that place? The memories that I despise and fear are readily available. The memories of God's steadfast love and faithfulness I have to keep chasing down. Where does the strength come from to continue chasing after those things? When I've forgotten them, where does the strength come from to to go pursuing them again? And it is in verses 31 to 33. So this is the 11th letter in Hebrew. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does... For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And so to get kind of a feel for it, it's the 11th letter is like a hard K, this key, key, key. It's four, 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 four the Lord will not cast off forever. For though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Here, in the middle of chapter 3, Chapter 3 being the middle elegy, the middle lament of five laments. Here's the why. Here's the how. Because the Lord will not cast off forever. Because though he causes grief, he has compassion. Because he does not willingly afflict the children of men from his heart. The Lord is compassionate. Literally, it means with suffering. That's why it's called the passion of Christ. It's the suffering of Christ. The Lord is compassionate. He suffers with you. Jesus weeps at the graveside of his friend, not for the future of Lazarus, but for what his friends, his Lazarus's sisters are going through. He weeps at the devastation that this world has brought, knowing that he is planning on remedying that, not just with raising Lazarus temporarily, but by going to the cross, and yet he still weeps, he still grieves. The Lord is compassionate. Compassion flows from his steadfast love. And so the 
the poet can go on. For example, in verses 55 to 60, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. And you heard me. You heard me. I said, please, please don't close your ears to my cry for help. And you came near. And you said, don't be afraid. These are the only words given to the Lord in Lamentations. The only thing that the Lord speaks into this darkness. Don't be afraid. I know it hurts. I suffer with you. But I promise, I promise I will redeem you. I promise. Though it cost me my life, I promise I will redeem you. So you can have hope. Let's pray.